When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ranching Reboot Podcast, episode 46. This week, we're back in the Eastus Media studio with my friend and neighbor Steve Stratford from Stratford Angus and Pratt Livestock. I think everybody will really appreciate Steve's perspective on the cattle market and the cattle business and what we can all do to start fixing some of the problems that we're having. All right. You ready? Yep. Well, Steve, thanks for being here. Thanks for doing this. I've uh, been wanting to meet up with you and and get something done for a long time long lines of a podcast or an interview and i'm glad we finally got a chance to sit down and do it and we're here again in pratt at uh, the eastus media studio and i'm glad we're we're doing this face to face and i'm really glad we are because i don't think that you and i would have near the same interaction we'd have on zoom so thanks for being here steve stratford you bet thank you brian and <clears throat> that's probably why uh we're behind the eight ball in the battle that we're all trying to fight anyways that we're all too busy uh, to make time happen i've wanted to be here before now and you know there's always work in the way so it uh so anyway glad we made it happen tonight yeah yeah if you want to go ahead and lean back just you know make sure that mic's a little bit close get comfortable it's a we'll fancy be... place yeah it is it's really nice i appreciate cody letting me use it so let's uh let's start off and let's tell the listeners a little bit about steve stratford and and what you do these days steve Oh, there's not a lot glorious about what I do, Brian. I uh, uh, We sell a couple hundred bulls to probably the 100-mile radius, basically. Some go outside of that, but um, to a lot of the local ranchers around here. Uh, have for a long time now, I don't know, 10, and, 15 years. And that's Stratford Angus. Mm-hmm. Um, and since 15, 16 years old, I've, I've ordered bought cattle. And of course, that probably progressively has got bigger. Um, but... As of today, you know, I purchase probably uh, fifty to 70,000 cattle a year for, for feed yards, um, non-corporate feed yards, I might add. And that, that's uh, with the barn here in, in Pratt, Pratt Livestock? Now, that's kind of separate from the barn. I mean, my order buying separate. But, okay. Um, and then um, I come on to uh, assist the Lewises um, in running Pratt Livestock um, for the Winter family. Um so kind of uh, do a lot of the jobs nobody else wants to do there. Um, but I do get the pleasure on Tuesday, Wednesday, of sorting um, off a lot of the cattle that we have. Um, you know, uh, yard manager Roger Ponick does that also, but we're busy like today sorting the, sorting the cattle. So I get to be on the ground with 150 to 70,000 cattle a year um, that we market through there. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a fun job. Um, you know, I love it and I've loved it for a long time. Um, I just like to like to see the people that we work for stay in business. It, there's no doubt. Like, I, and I think that no matter what side of the regenerative or conventional fence anybody's on, like, there's no argument about it. Our rural communities are dying, and 
one of the things that that you said that I absolutely love is cows build towns. And I, I think there's a lot of fundamental truth and we can, we can definitely circle back to that later. Um, you kind of opened up by talking about, you know, some of the, some of the problems we're facing and, you know, I want to get this show out next week. And have you seen, have you seen like the, the thing they did at the white house? I think that was yesterday. It was like almost two hours. They put a little, I watched about 30 minutes of it on YouTube, but they're, the Biden Harris administration is talking about what they're going to try to do mm-hmm. to revive to, to address the situation that we're facing with the meat packers and, and consolidation and not just in not just us beef producers. I mean, they're talking about helping the chicken and the pork guys out too. Have, are you familiar with any of that? Mm-hmm. What what do you think of of what they said they want to do? Like, is there anything legislatively in the pipeline that you know of that could actually bring some relief? I mean, they're talking about strengthening the Packers and Stockyards Act. They're trying to blame previous administrations for weakening it. It's like, it. we don't need to act. I don't think we need to strengthen any laws on the books. I think we just actually need to start enforcing them. Yeah, that's exactly right. The laws are there. And 100 years ago, we knew exactly um, that uh, what's going on today didn't need to happen. It would adversely affect our, our uh, ag producers and the consumer. And here we are. Um, <clears throat> that That frustrates me as much as anything um you know when when those laws and i think 1921 if i'm if i'm correct were put in um there was five or six of the major packers at the time i think it was five i think and, i, I think uh, i thought it was five and it was like 55 percent is what they controlled and we knew that was too much for the consumer and for the rancher and and initiated those laws well today you've got four with 85 percent so it shows you what a piss poor job they've done at enforcing that law, and it's not because the PNS is understaffed or they don't like going around forcing laws. Um, for instance, in my order buying, um, you know, I have to file a yearly report with the PNS. If I'm thirty days late filing that report, they'll show up at the sale barns I work at and cease and desist and shut you down. Really? If you don't fill out the paperwork. What what's that paperwork? Like I'm I'm not familiar with that. Oh, it's uh, the 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 foundation of the paperwork is to require an order buyer to be bonded. Okay. Um. So under PNS rules, if I buy cattle for anybody but myself, I have to be bonded. And, and that's for financial responsibility and liability, right? But any sale barn in the country will tell you that those bonds ain't worth the paper they're written on. They're just an insurance policy, and they're going to do everything they can not to pay it. Um so on and so forth and if a big order buyer tips over they're never bonded for enough of what they tip over but that's beside the point but the pns report for me is basically you the total headcount per quarter and the total dollars per quarter and then you have to be bonded for your highest quarter okay and so you send in that report and they tell you if you got to raise your bond or not for the year can you Um, scoot just a little bit closer to the mic um but anyway they enforce that wholeheartedly and they have a big staff enforcing that um to the point of if we have a guy wander in and he's buying 25 30 kids for his neighbor when the pns comes into a sale barn ask for a run out of anybody that got paid commission if those people charge a commission on 20 head they'll be sending them a letter and breathing down their throat you know for a total dollars a commission of maybe a thousand for a year yeah that that's kind of like they're they're trying to scoop up peanuts. Yeah, and they won't enforce the the uh, the laws against 
um, the Packers um, colluding and and owning livestock and so on and so forth. Um, so it's obvious that the corporate power and the corporate money has got them to ignore those laws. Um, it's not lack of staffing, lack of interest. You know, they get in all of our business, so they've just tried to avoid the laws of the Packers. And I'm sure they probably get some special carve-outs and provisions in those laws that, you know, some of that stuff applies to little guys like you and me, but doesn't apply if you're over this kind of a scale. Mm-hmm. It's disturbing that things like that happen. And those are the kind of things that happen, like, you know, some of these um, some of these agreements that we need to talk about, like uh, alternative marketing agreements. These backroom deals that are that are a handshake and probably not even written down. Like, I guess that's, that's something I want to get into is uh, they're talking about having to report all of these alternative marketing agreements, the alternative marketing agreement reporting system. How many of those you think are actually written down? Cause I think you and I both know that we can get a lot of business done with a handshake over the hood of a pickup and there's no paper chain hands and we can do million dollars worth of cattle business on a handshake. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's no doubt that, that some of them are that way, Brian. But, um, you know, if if they've got to report how they sell their cattle and the total revenue for those cattle, including end-of-the-year kickbacks or, or uh, per headcount bonuses, so on and so forth, then the way I understand it, those should all be included, whether it's a written contract or not. Um, and while we're on the contract point, um, if you look at the PNS rules, um, it's illegal for the Packers to own cattle. Um, right, and they obviously have failed to enforce that and the loopholes that allow them to. But even these AMAs, you know, I mean, take for inter- instance, if I came down to uh, Ted and Brian Alexander's and I contracted your cattle in April for October delivery, we could scratch it out on that notepad. And if I fail to show up, you have a case in court, right? And you'll probably win. Um, in this area, you know, um, the courts favor ag and that's the way it's been done for years and they understand ag and so basically in april when i price those cattle or tell you i'm gonna come get them in october i own them right i mean i haven't paid for them yet and i haven't took delivery but i own them but that that's a commitment right and the packers have those agreements all over and so i do not understand um how and why we can't enforce that as packer ownership And it seems like they can get out of their side of the deal if they want to. Like, they can contract with the feed yard, like, oh, we'll take October delivery on, you know, these 10 pens. And October comes, and they're like, oh, well, we only need two because this plant screwed up. Sorry, we're not going to pay you. Mm -hmm. And there's no recourse for the feedlot. And they don't do that to the big big guys with the special special deals and stuff. They do that to the farmer feeders in Nebraska and Iowa. That's Um, why there aren't any left. Yeah. When COVID hit, um, you heard story after story of that, you know, making them overfeed them 30, 45 days while they kept their buddies current, um, which allowed their buddies to come by feeder cattle, you know, without those farmer feeders in the market competing against them. Um, you know, shit runs downhill. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it hurt, hurt people in two or three different folds. It only really takes one guy, one other guy sitting in the stands in that sale barn to make a huge difference in the sale price on that day, doesn't it? Oh, you know, I've told many people, but, uh, you know, you reverse back to the mid-90s. Um, you know, we had three times the active feeder buyers as we do today. Um, a lot of individuals, a lot of those baby boomer age guys that have either either died or quit, went broke. Um, 
but if the corporations got full or they walked out um, or, uh, you know, the board reacted ad- adversely that day that everybody watches, there was an individual there to to pick up the slack within a dollar or two, you know, of what the corporations would give. Um, in today's world, um, it's so shallow. If, if one of the two of the biggest purchasers that day would fill up or stop, um, the market can drop five to eight dollars a hundred on a class of cattle wow with one guy falling out and that's too much power for any guy to have and and i'm sitting here and 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 today and it may not be the case five years from now but i'm one of those guys um you know there's five or six of us in there that if you went if you just got up and packed up and left the market could be you know quite a bit lower not, right. not all weeks but certain weeks um and there's no reason for for it to be that that tight knit and anybody'd have that much power my uh my friend that used to live west of me down the river i think you know who i'm talking about i don't i don't want to mention any names but uh he he's left the area he uh i used to go to the sail barn down woodward with him quite often and there was several times like late in the day he'd have all his orders filled but there'd be a draft of cattle he'd start bidding on him he'd be like dude what are you doing he's like i am not gonna let this guy have that pen of cattle that freaking cheap it's too cheap. We got to keep prices up. I said, what happens if you get stuck with them? He said, well, every once in a while it happens. I get stabbed with an extra load that I don't need, but I'll find a way to make money on them. Okay. Fair enough. So it just takes one guy. Sometimes it just takes one guy to run that, you know, run up four or five bucks. Second place is the uh, most important spot in an auction. You know, obviously first place came to give whatever they give or more. We don't know. Um, You know, but second place pushed them to that amount. Um, so, you know, everybody, everybody wants to get up and thank the guy that bought him and, and, and that's great, but, uh, it takes second place to put him there. I like that thought. That's a good thought. And it probably comes from a lot of years of seeing the inside of a lot of sale barns. So tell me a little bit more about the story of Stratford Angus. How did you get in the bull breeding business? How did you, how did you get in the seed stock business? Um, you know, that probably started by kind of order buying bulls for people, just a lot of good friends and, and so on and so forth, I guess, started asking me to, to purchase bulls for them at other places. Um, we've always, we had always ran a cow herd, so on and so forth. Um, so I guess I just started, uh, I started breeding and, and procuring those bulls for my customers, you know, direct. Um, and it, you know, it's not the, it's not the breeding and raising the bulls that's enjoyable. It's the, the seeing the progeny and and uh, seeing the result when they come back in the auction. Um, I don't think if I was a standalone just just seed stock supplier, I would enjoy it as much as I am where I'm at the sale barn and order buying because you get to firsthand see them come back. Um, I can there, imagine that's pretty rewarding. Yeah, there's a there's is other seed stock guys that that do that uh, most in the northwest. Um, but very few in this immediate area, you know, get their hands on them again and again, um, and then get the feedback from the from the feeder end. Um, that's probably why losing some of those Iowegian farmer feeders is that I'm so passionate about trying to keep in business is because those guys would buy those one two lot deals of home race steers, keep them separate, um, and get the uh, harvest data on them. Um, you got a lot of feedback from those type of guys to where the the big feed yards commingle them with cattle from other barns. Um, there's a lot less uh, traceability. Um, so the the whole chain 
makes supplying the bulls fun. I mean, and again, it goes back to the people. I mean, uh, for the most part, you know, I get five, six, seven, eight new customers a year. I don't have a handful die or, you know, quit, so on and so forth. But the core are people I've dealt with for 30 years now, um, you know, uh, and starting to deal with the second and, and in some cases the third generation of people I've dealt with. Um, and that's neat. That is neat. That is really neat. So what, uh, like, what type of bulls do you raise? What's your, what's your, what are you looking for phenotypically? You know, we want a bull that's um, that's pleasing to the eye. Um, we probably don't do that to the um, to the degree of uh, some more of the um, show calf type kettle, right? Um, because we would err to performance conversion and carcass also. Um, yet we live in South Central Kansas, so so you've got to keep downward pressure on milk. Um, we're probably to the threshold now that um, we're starting to make these females for this country too big. Um, so um, the last year or two, um, we've probably started capping that growth. Um, you know, we've got just too much power in these cattle now. How big's too big on the cow? You know, that varies. Um, you know, your management versus my neighbor's management's, you know, two totally different things, and their resources are different. Um, so... That varies. Um, in this area, I would say 90% of people probably need a cow that weighs 11 and a half to 14. Um, you get any bigger than that, which we are on some of these cows, it's, it's too big for this country. Um, you know, and I think, I think maybe on the lower end, like a lot of mine are, are 600, but we're trying to breed that up. And I think I'm trying to shoot for about a 900 to a thousand pound cow, but I'm on a lot hillier ground than you're probably familiar with up here in Pratt County. And I think I need a lighter cow to be able to travel up and down the hills and be able to cross all my you know bogs and, and swamp lands efficiently. Yeah. As long as we can get the gut capacity and, and keep, you know, a decent frame size. Yeah. And then you've got to, You've got to have that performance at the next level, and and that's the, what the catch twenty two is. Um, I think these cows have got too big to be profitable for the rancher. If you take into consideration the feed requirements and the breed back um, longevity of the cow, yeah. Now, if we were getting as a rancher, if you were getting your share of the retail dollar, then that added performance that you're supplying the industry. Um, if you were getting what you deserved out of that product would uh, counteract a lot of the ills of that bigger cow. Um, the way we are now working on a smaller margin than we were in 1975 as a, as a cow-calf producer, we're basically programming and breeding these animals um, for the packer. And so all the ill effects of that performance and that size of that cow is falling at the rancher's expense. Because the bigger cow and the bigger carcass per per animal makes the packer more money yep. than a smaller animal. Correct. And and, and you and I have had this this discussion previously. A smaller animal is more profitable for the rancher, but it just might not bring a whole lot at the sale barn or mm. or for the packer, which is why they don't sell well at the sale barn. And everything's so performance based. These these Western Kansas feedlots. I mean, it, they're all um, you know on monthly 
comparison data between the feed yards of conversion and gain, um, all the feed additives and the implants, and, um, you know, just everybody's grade card is off performance. Um, and like I say, that's fine. Um, if, uh, if we were selling $1,500 calves, um, you know, you can take an extra 5%, 10% open cows. Um, you can turn your cow herd over every six years instead of every 10. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that, that, uh, that increased market share would allow you to do and supply what the packer and the feed yards are wanting. Um, the way it is now, like I say, all that cost is falling on the rancher. They're going out and giving the five to 7,000 for those bulls that, that are designed for the packing industry, not designed for Barber County ranches. Right. Right. And after a year or two out in the grasslands of the red Hills, they don't, they look a little bit rough. And trust me, I mean, I, uh, <clears throat> what's very unique is that I get to breed bulls. I purchase feeder cattle for feed yards. Um, I get a lot of feedback on the, on the harvest data. Um, couple things you probably don't know but i'm very good friends in in smaller scale packing not corporate packing okay um a lot of friends in the meat business my brother-in-law um has colorado premium beef um is a further processor i didn't know that um so um i'm it's very unique i get to see the entire chain and get feedback from the entire chain most people are specialists in in one field, I'm a specialist in nothing, but I get a lot of information from from everywhere down the line. And, and you've got a great perspective on the entire beef industry, soup to nuts, seed stock production, from the farmer feeder and cow calf guy, all the way to craft meat and commodity beef through the feedlot. And and I'm assuming you have some experience with pasture finished, forage finished beef, or is that something you not, haven't, not haven't as been much into yet? In some, but some, some, and. Like my brother-in-law with Colorado Premium, um, you know, in other countries, and, you know, they could sell all the grass-finished beef that you can get your hands on is what he tells me. And it, it's a big, it's a growing market in, in Australia and in other parts of the country. Um, Do you see it growing here? You know, uh, A, he does. Um, B. I'm sensing you don't agree. I think it is probably a growing market for the millennial that will be feeding that replaces the baby boomer that's dying. I agree. 100%. Uh, you know, well, right now, while the baby boomers are, are still alive and are filling all the restaurants and have all the equity and, and they're still, um, the major beef consumers, um, it's business as usual. I mean, they're going to sit down and eat that 16 ounce steak and they don't care what you fed it and, what you did to it and, or what any doctor or report says about it. Um, and they don't want that warm, fuzzy story about where it came from. They don't care. They don't, that, care. They don't care that you called it peaches for yep. five years. Now the new generation where that will be the lead consumers and will be the older consumer in another decade. And the one that goes to the grocery store and is doing the shopping for their family. Um, it's a whole different beast. Um, you know, they do want a story and they'll pay for a story. Um, they do want to know more of a source and where it came from, um, and how it was fed. Um, 
they probably don't get as much enjoyment out of a out of a prime steak that was uh, grain finished like I do. Um, they'd rather have a half a portion that probably costs just as much and know exactly everything about it the whole whole way down the scale. And that's what we've all got to adjust to. How prevalent that'll be, um, what kind of a market driver that'll be. Um, but I think it is in, in volume market. Okay. Have you started to maybe select some bulls for forage performance? You know, personally, no. Um, I I don't have anybody right offhand that, that is doing that. Um, and quite honestly, I would not sell a bull that does not require more energy than that. Okay. I mean, you won't like the, I liken it to, and this is one thing that we don't do a great job of educating bull buyers on. Um, some people come give a lot of money for the most high powered, high growth bull that, that you've got, but then they feed like they've got a 900 pound cow, like you're going to run. And so their progeny is probably smaller than it was 20 years ago. And I liken that the easiest way to explain that to somebody that, that I've found that they can grasp is your 300 horsepower diesel motor getting all the fuel it needs runs a lot better than a 700 horsepower diesel motor on half the fuel it needs. I like, that's a good analogy. That's a good analogy. And it seems to be the easiest way to get people to, you know, um, you need to, you need to choose your, choose your bulls for your resources. Um, now there's also a flip side to that. Um, like this time of year, lighter kettle head dollar wise, will get awfully close to a bigger one. People taking them to grass to, to the August feeder board. And even though you didn't get those pounds out of that cattle, that performance is genetically there. Right. And so the guy that takes them to forage and they do have all they want next summer, come off grass, go to feed, they're aged, uh, that performance shows up and that guy's there next year to give too much. Um, I have a really good friend that happens to be a neighbor and probably a leaser of yours. Um, and that's kind of the model he he runs. Yeah, well, I, I know exactly who you're talking about. We don't need to mention his name, but uh, we, we are great friends. And I know he's used your bulls for at least 10 years. I mean. Yeah, probably 20. Yeah. I, yeah, and it's it, it's really neat having him as a neighbor because did you know that our fathers ran cattle together out there on, that, on all that property together back in the 90s? Yeah, I did. I was buying cattle for his dad in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small world, yep. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. My friend's calves, like he blew the doors off the barn. Like that was, I was proud of him for that. That was, that was, that was amazing. So what you were talking about, like educating a bull buyer, and one of the questions I have written down over here is, what, like, who should buy bulls from you, and what are some things that you want to tell a bull buyer? <clears throat> You know, my job is to assist the, the bull buyer, and, and I have so many people with various resources, various different management. Um, that's my job as a seed stock supplier. When he comes and asks for advice or, or ask about the bulls um, or the sire groups of what fits him the best, um, that's where uh, – Another good friend, and he's not going to mind me saying his name, but Chris Earl is also a, a 
cattle breeder and seed stock supplier and and we come to we come to a disagreement with the Angus Association um, their idea of educating a bull buyer is educating him on what the packer wants okay and I'll be the first it's kind of like the checkoff you know in the 80s and 90s beef was in trouble oh yeah and we needed to check off and we needed advertising of beef and we needed to change our product we've done that and the turnover in a commercial cow herd is so slow that you know it's 10 years behind me right with embryo transfer and you know and in the age of a commercial cow herd's cow so fast forward 10 years from now and see how big the cows are going to be, how poor the fertility is going to be in in subarid places like we are. Oh, I think I think we're in for a wreck. I think a lot of guys are in for a wreck. Yeah. I mean, if you don't start fixing that today, you know we've went too far. Um, so, the Ang Association does a lot of amazing things, and it's an amazing association with great employees. Um, and and they've done a great job of elevating the Angus breed to, you know, the top of the cattle business. There's no doubt. Um, but their desire to be a mega corporation or be at the table with the NCBAs and the Packers and, and feel included in the cattle industry has got them to where some of the information is misguided for the average commercial producer, if that makes sense. Um, I can see that. It, you can't have I, a blanket approach. It, it takes a different bull and a different seed stock supplier in Okeechobee, Florida, than it does Pratt, Kansas, and a different one in Pratt, Kansas, than it does Bozeman, Montana. Um, I've had a lot of people, just because, like on any given Thursday, Pratt Livestock, it's probably why I enjoy doing what I do because for that little bit of time, I'm as educated and in the know as anybody because I know the producers, I know the kill, I know what day they came in, I know the past performance. I, you know, I know all the answers right. that anybody else could know. Well, there's still a lot of fubus in there that you can screw up, but, but I have as much information, I guess, what I ought to say as anybody. I go to Okeechobee, Florida. I don't have that. I don't know those cattle. I don't know the past history. I don't know anything about them. You can't go look at a pen of cows and say those cows fit this environment or and those cows will succeed here or feed well. Yeah, those guys have done business there for 30 years. I mean, they could out trade me, you know, all day long. And that's the same thing in the, in the seed stock business in the region you're in. American Angus can't coach my bull buyer like I can. And I'm not saying I'm smarter than them, but I know their management. I know how they deal with their kettle. I know how they market their kettle. I know when they market their kettle. I know how they feed. And so... You know what the weather's like in this area and what it it takes to keep an animal alive here. So I... That's the service. That's why they pay me for my bull. Is, you know, there's a lot of Angus bulls for sale. You know, you come buy bulls from people, you know, not because they're an Angus bull. Um, and so I think the, the individual breeder needs to be the one educating his um, clientele 
um, not a blanket education from from uh, the Angus Association on what uh, JBS and Tyson want you to do. Oh, and I think that you know things like you know. Th- like some of the recommendations, you know, their blanket things they put out and, you know, things like EPDs are because there's a lot of people that don't have the time or the ability to understand everything. And they just need a simple, they just need it distilled down quickly to something very simple that they can act on. Like, what's the best bull for my ranch? I mean, sure, you you hear that question probably, <laughs> probably way more than you want to admit. And it's... It's like, you know, what are the best cows? What kind of cows should I buy? Well, how the hell should I know? I don't even know if you should own cows. But here's what I think. Your cows need to fit your environment. You need to have bulls that will succeed on your forage base and grow to fit your goals. And what breed is that? I have no idea. And you probably don't either. Nobody can answer this. Like, you you can't answer these questions for everybody. the same exact environment need two different bulls. Some people keep heifers every year. And uh, that female is going to have to work. Some people, some of my biggest bull buyers, um, I purchase females for them. Um, and so retaining heifers is is not a concern. So that opens up a whole different deal. We don't have to worry about pedigree, and we don't have to worry about maternal traits. We're just selling pounds of beef and performance. Right. And that is a totally different advisory role than the guy that keeps 30, 40 heifers every year and you know, maintains his cow herd that way. Um, so that ball's moving all the time, and, and it's different. Like I say, you know, two people living right next to each other need a totally different bull. Right, and, you know, sometimes that could just be a difference of two weeks of calving season or just, you know, a change in feeding strategy. Or, you know, what if somebody's looking for, you know, trying to make those F1 crosses or, or trying to make, you know, a commercial animal to go into the commercial system and don't care about raising their own replacements. Mm-hmm. I think... You know, and, and you can disagree with me if you if you want to. I have no problem with that. I think the only way to get good cows is you either have to grow them yourself or you got to buy the ranch they're standing on. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, that would go to being uh, that your female needs to be adapted to to your environment. I mean, um, and and that is that is very true. Um, now, the definition of a good cow. What what is Steve Stratford's <laughs> definition of a good cow? You know, a good cow to me is one that's profitable for the guy running her. Okay. I don't care if she raises a four hundred pound calf or an eight hundred pound calf. I don't care if she weighs nine fifty or fourteen fifty. Um, if if you can run that cow in in your management scheme and and your revenue offsets your expenses, um, it's probably a good cow. World, she's a good cow, and you know. Some people can, you know, some people can raise the best cows in the world. Um, some people can buy a cow and make her work. Um, you know, it, it's a very diverse business. Takes all kind of folk to make the world go yeah. around. <laughs> so back to uh, back to bulls. How would you? How does a person evaluate a bull without relying on EPDs? What do you look for visually in a bull to to tell you that he's gonna he's gonna perform well and he's masculine and testosterone? Do you have any visual indicators that that you learned from your time buy, order buying? Oh, you know, you just structure. Um, I know good, you you were feet. 
you were huge on feet and structure like five, six, seven years ago because I, I know because I saw them. There were a lot. There were a lot of cattle in the area that had some serious structural problems with their legs and feet. I know you're huge on that. I mean, you know, legs, feet. Um, you know, you got to have some scrotal. There's no doubt in the world that the scrotal size is uh, directly relative to fertility in the daughters, um, and the ability for that bull to to cover enough females. You know, they can be mounting females, and they don't have anything to shoot, so it doesn't do any good. Um, you know, everybody judges if the bull's working on if he's mounting. Well, he's got to produce semen and, and have storage of semen to be able to cover those 30 cows that are in, you know, in a two-week period. Um, and he's got to have the feet and the legs to, to get him around to do that. Um, in today's world, you would have to hunt pretty hard in this area. To go buy a bull that uh, just flat off EPD performance um, is going to do you a disservice. Um, you know, we've the one thing we've done is we've made these cattle awfully good, um, you know, performance-wise. So at this point, you know, as long as the EPDs are acceptable, um, I think the biggest focus is, is uh, keepability, feed, and scrotal. What should people not worry about when they're buying bulls? What's 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 crap in every bull catalog that people should just ignore, or is there anything? Oh, I'd probably be cautious for you to tell you that there's there's stuff to just totally ignore. Um, I guess what would set off alarm bells if you saw in somebody else's catalog? Probably what is misunderstood um, in the general public is uh, actual weaning weights and actual yearling weights. Okay. A lot of people like to print those, and a lot of people like to look at them and compare them from one breeder to another, and you really can't do that. Um, yeah, I, I can definitely see how that would lead to a train wreck. Those those actuals are in the EPD in the in the form of a ratio in your herd. And so my bull that weighs eleven fifty a year cannot be directly compared to a bull at breeder thirty miles from here's yearling weight of fourteen hundred because he's fed different. Right. Um so the DNA and your weaning and yearling ratios are, are all in that EPD. Um so comparing actuals is a real uh, catch twenty two. Um birth weight is also the same thing um, you know if that cow's eating out of a bunk and getting fed really good she's going to have bigger calves than that that cow that's being treated like a real cow so comparing a 65 pound birth weight at my place to an 80 pound birth weight somewhere else or vice versa um, is a fa- fallacy um, so in today's world looking at those actuals do you think we chase birthing weights too low yeah oh yeah um I think that's some of the problem. You know, we went, everybody went through the, the continentals, and that's, that's what made Angus popular was fixing all the dystocia. <laughs> um, and so we bred everything to be these curve benders, you know, ultra low birth weight, yet all this performance. That has come into problems in every breed that I happen to deal in Angus. Um, but we've kind of outthought Mother Nature there. Um, most of those 
extreme low birth weight cattle or, or shorter gestation. Um, they're born a little frailer. And they're designed to weigh two, 300 pounds more than 20 years ago, 400 pounds more. And they're also designed to do that in a shorter period of time, so they gain more. What isn't different is their lungs aren't any bigger or stronger. Right. Their heart isn't any bigger or stronger. And if you throw adverse effects like humidity or heat or weather, they can't take it. And their livers aren't any bigger. Yeah. we've And we're feeding them. We're, they're, they're using so much energy that you throw any other stressor out of there, something gives. And we've got that, like I say, in Angus, and so does every other breed. Um, but the deaths at the feed yard are called AIP. And most of those, um, there's a lot smarter people than me working on it. Um, but I think most of those are your cattle that are probably born lighter, did not have the, the skeleton and structure to carry the performance that they're genetically have in them. Um, and if you will trace a lot of those kettle back, it's kettle that never had a bad day. I mean, it's like having a kid that, that uh, has always had what he wanted. And then when he's 25, couldn't figure out why he hadn't grown up. And yeah. you know, you never, what do you mean? Job. I have to go get a job. And those kettle that never had a stressor, their life's been perfect. Um, if everything goes right, they're the ones to put in the catalog and, and write an article about how well they perform. But if something doesn't go right, they can't handle it. Um, and there's a little fallacy of there back to the seed stock. Um, we make cattle survive that in a normal environment wouldn't have 30 years ago. And then we're selling that to somebody else to replicate. I mean, we go out and we bring them into a barn or we treat them special or you know we give them three doses of colostrum to keep them alive because we have so much invested in them well 30 years ago he'd have been frozen to the ground and wouldn't have been a bull that you'd have selected now he may have all the right pieces epd wise and performance wise but he wouldn't have survived his mother didn't make him survive and is that and if his mother couldn't raise him is that really something that should be sold as a bull to continue his genetic heritage correct and so we, we've, we've started making seed stocks life too perfect. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of places you'll see now and, and, you know, it seems like everybody that, that, uh, has a successful business in some other realm when they get to be mid-aged decide they want to be John Wayne and have a cow herd. seems like that, doesn't There's it? There's some kind of allure to the cowboy. Is that why the average age in ranching keeps going up? <laughs> <laughs> but these outfits build big, huge buildings and calving barns, and and it's a good animal husbandry tactic. I mean, they do a great job and they treat the cattle great. But where's the line between good husbandry and just absolutely pampering and babying the shit out of them to where they wouldn't be able to survive in the wild? Yeah, exactly. And so I think we're breeding some of the survivability out of them. Um, you know, we got a lot better antibiotics and vaccines than we did 20, 30 years ago. Um, and in the fall, still to this day, you know, calf health's the biggest biggest hurdle we all we all face when you move them around. 
October is usually National Dead Calf Month. I know I'm not the only person that's that says that. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of things that we need to focus on probably now. I think the carcass and the performance is there. We probably have went overboard for what most commercial operations um, can supply the energy for. Um, and so now we probably need to start taking a look at uh, survivability, fertility, and, uh, you know, quite honestly, kettle that that, that don't fall uh, suspect to BRD, BRSV, pink eye, things like that. I agree. And I feel like the more that we can take away, the more cow-calf producers like me that are willing to start taking away these supplements and these and these inputs and go to a lower input and accept, you know, some lower fertility for some lower cost, it, it's going to be painful to get through the hurdle of going from a higher input type operation to an input to a lower input and build back to to where you were product wise. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, oh, what was I saying? <laughs> what were we talking about? Just breeding cattle to be tougher, basically. Right. You know, breeding the survivability back into them. You know, that, that's one of the things that really appealed to me about the Coriente breed. So. I don't. I don't think I've ever really discussed this, and somebody somebody sent me a picture of this, and I'll I'll kind of walk through it with you. You've heard me talk about school called ranching for profit. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's seven days, and on like one of the things you do in the last day and a half is you do this exercise about nature's cow herd. Okay, and you don't talk about your ranch; you talk about your neighbor's ranch because you never talk about your ranch there. You always talk about your neighbor's because it's a lot easier to talk about the problems on your neighbor's ranch and what he's doing wrong than admit what you're doing wrong, right? Okay. So, you and I have ranches. We have identical-looking operations today. The only difference is I leave. I tear out all my fences. I leave for 20 years, and I come back. What do our cow herds look like? Yours will probably look the same. What is nature's cow herd going to look like? They're going to be a smaller frame animal. Your fertility is going to be in the 80s. You're going to have more of an even balance between, you know, between males and females. And if you could make one change to that nature's cow herd, like just one change, the change you make is the bull to cow ratio, and you cut the and you make steers out of most of your bulls. That's the one change you make, and the like the improvements in the economics and the gross margin is is unreal. Yeah, your your pro your. Uh, your profit is more in the exercise. Your input costs are so low that that reduced that the little bit less you get from the sales is totally offset and you make more profit. Does that make any sense? Yeah. You know, so I, I always thought I, the first time I went through that course and I was exposed to that exercise was in 2006. So that's always been in the back of my mind. And, you know, um, another family that we, we had cattle with, uh, for a long time on the ranch i'm not going to mention their name i think you know they're up around croft mm-hmm. i think you know them um they they kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and over the years i've been pressured by you know various people to get cows and you know told i should have my own cows and i never i'd never really put much thought into it until a couple of years ago when i when i really started thinking about it and then making some plans and i started thinking about well, well, what do I want? Well, I want I want something that's going to be small, 
I want something that's going to be efficient, something that's going to be fertile, something I don't have to mess with all the time. So that that's what's steered me toward Corrientes because that to me represents more of what an animal would look like if we weren't here trying to live here. Because mm-hmm. that breed had 400 years of natural selection running around the desert southwest without anybody screwing with them or feeding them corn or hauling them hay all winter or breaking ice for them, right? <laughs> I mean, they had it pretty rough. Somewhere in there, somewhere in my cow herd is some really good survivable genetics. And I hope that over time I can take those survivable small frame genetics, upgrade that carcass a little bit, but keep the low input and, and have a good product. So that's, I guess that's kind of where I'm at. And you probably, I mean, there's no doubt you can. The, the challenge there is going to be to, if you're going to keep replacements to, be able to keep the female you want but supply a steer that the market will purchase unless you market yourself and that's i'm i think i'm gonna have to market myself and the conventional commodity production system is not for me i mean that doesn't mean you'll never see me at your sale barn (laughs) it's just not for me and i have kept all of my heifers all my heifer calves the last two years are still out there with the cows they're living with the cows like this year's calves were only separate from the cows for 47 days and they got dumped right back with them they went to wheat pasture and had just a minimum of feed i mean i'm not babying them i'm treating these heifers these heifer calves from birth exactly like the cows i wish they were and hopefully that drives me to my goal i mean it sounds good in theory right (laughs) and you'll i mean i imagine you'll like that female and if you can whether it be grass fed or or uh, more conventionally fed um and sold off the ranch to the to the consumer um that animal probably supplies a carcass that is is uh, very appealing to somebody buying a quarter or half a beef um in today's mass beef industry that animal probably doesn't get big enough um probably doesn't have enough performance even though it may be very efficient um to have a repeat purchaser come in the feeder cattle realm for it right they're going to want them to finish at 14 to 16 and they'll probably finish a lot closer to 11 or 12 right and at 11 or 12 they'll i mean it's just going to be just as good as it was if it was you know a bigger animal now while we're talking about carcass size like we, we did we cover it earlier about how how big carcasses make the packer more money? Mm-hmm. Well, we've mentioned it. Can we unpack that a little bit? Well, I mean, it takes it takes the same amount of time, effort, and, and energy, and um, you know, to buy that animal, um, process that animal that has hangs a seven hundred fifty pound carcass as it does the one with ten hundred fifty pound carcass. Um, so even though there is discounts for heavy carcasses and more so off of uh, small producers and retained ownership people than there is the big boys. Um, You know, don't kid yourself. They want a carcass as big as they can get one. I'm glad you said that because I, I have heard in the last year of people that have, you know, have taken exactly what they thought the Packer wanted, you know, a 1650 and owned it all the way to the Packer door and the Packer just like, absolutely 
butchered them on price and didn't give them anything for them. And the next guy in line brought in a pen of 1,200 pounders and got a premium. And it's it's almost like a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense. And I I bet some of it circles back to those alternative marketing agreements that are secret backroom deals. Yeah, the the big outfits, the mega corporations, the, the people that feed 120, 30,000 kettle and more, they have a different grid than your neighbor or my neighbor retaining ownership in their kettle. Basically, and, and that's why I said as, as seed stock people and, and uh, people that sell bulls, our, our focus needs to uh, probably cap on the growth here, not only for the cow size for the rancher, but we're actually making an animal that uh, if you take some of these performance calves right now and you put them out on wheat and you make them weigh nine or a 1,000 on wheat before they go on feed, they're going to, in order to be fat, they're going to uh, provide a carcass that 30% of that pen is going to be discounted for heavy carcasses. Uh, the AMAs, um, and like I say, the big feed yards, you know, they have allowances for those heavy carcasses. They don't get discounted. Um, your same neighbor that we were talking about earlier, um, father um, put a pen of kettle, home raised kettle on the grid, would have been out of our bulls. Kettle gained 5.1. Wow. Convert 5-4 to 1. Did everything you can ask them to do. Yeah. But there was about 30% heavy carcasses. But there was 15% prime and like 55% CAB. Long story short, the discounts for the heavy carcasses allowed the packer to steal the prime and the CABs. Um, Where a big corporation feeding them wouldn't have got discounted for those heavy carcasses. You know, some of them were five, ten pounds over the 1050 threshold. Um, and so, you know, here's my problem there. It makes me angry to hear things like that. Yeah. If in that packing house there was a separate box for the 1050s and up and you saw them at Walmart, you know, rolls of burger and T-bones and steaks that uh, were 40% cheaper because – they were 10.50 and up. <laughs> um, and the same thing with the over 30s. You know, in the Mad Cow era, there was a reason that there was an over 30 discount. Because right. it did have to be kept separate. It could, was not exportable. Now that's not the case. There's no over 30 restriction anywhere. So there's not a separate box for the over 30s either. But they still it's still an extra cost for over 30, isn't it? Like, don't they have to do something else with the, with the head and the spinal cord? You know, I'm going to play ignorant on that, but I don't think so. Okay. Not unless it's a hard bone now. Okay. But I stand to be corrected, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Well, hopefully a listener will write in or send me a message and tell us what we said wrong right there. But, they, you know, I think it's it's wrong, if not criminal, that you can discount as a packing industry. They can discount for something that they're not discounted for. But they're discounting something that they're charging a premium for. I mean, like, the only way to get those giant tomahawk ribeyes is a giant carcass. Like, and I think it's silly to pay $40 for a $20 ribeye steak just because it's got the bone still attached to it and the butcher had to do less work. Good job marketing agencies on that one. But the only way to get those is from those big carcasses, and that's where they get their premiums from. But we're getting screwed on our big carcasses. But that's what they're asking us to make. 
and there's you know there's outfits that get a premium for the same carcass that your neighbor's dad gets a discount for you know with their special grid yeah <laughs> you know you know they they want certain pe- certain places with a lot of kettle to make those 16 1700 pound kettle to to provide that plant with the tonnage to keep them out of the market to be able to buy the kettle of retained ownership of, of a rancher's cheaper I mean it it makes business sense you you can't argue that it you can't argue about that that it makes business sense and the same thing without the restrictions on the imports uh, you know the, oh, I, the South American meat coming in here I think that's the the packers a ton of money because you take those retained ownership cattle and if you're not an AMA or you're not a huge feed yard basically they make you feed them two three weeks longer than you should so here comes your yo grade four and five discounts off those prime and CAB carcasses that they make a ton on, but then they get to discount you for the fours and fives. Well, the fact they cut off the fours and fives, they mix with the South American import and then sell to an American consumer with a product of the USA label on it. Minimally processed. And so, again, you're getting discounted for something that then they're turning into a profit center. Right. Now, cry over spilt milk. They're better at their job than we've been. They just they have a lower cost of labor. They have lower cost of operations. They don't have to pay sixty thousand dollars to go buy a new pickup to put a fifteen thousand dollar bale bed on to feed cows. Mm-hmm. You know, their their cost of doing business down down in Brazil is cheaper. Now, and we I, should, I, we should have been more proactive a long time ago fighting for our position, but everybody was home making a living. And quite honestly... Well, we had the checkoff telling us that imports were okay. Yeah, that we, we had to balance the imports because we wanted to export, and we had to balance those out, and the, that the imports were benefiting the American cattlemen. I don't see how that happened. Yeah, and that's what... I think everybody... Everybody stayed reserved because they thought that there was associations and checkoff and, and everything that they paid into and every association they supported they thought was working on their behalf and they weren't and that's how we found our place you know where we're at now well i think everybody probably understands the checkoff well enough you know so the checkoff's funded by every time i sell a cow at the barn i pay a dollar the barn pays a dollar right just you pay that just i pay the dollar okay and that's to promote beef the problem I've always had with the checkoff is I'm not in the beef business. I'm in the grass business. I'm in the cattle business now, but I've always been in the grass business. Now I'm in the cattle business. I'm trying to be in the beef business on my own scale, on my own terms. But for the most part, the checkoff promotes a product that we're not selling. They're promoting the product that the packers are selling and the packers are dependent on us. But at the same time, they also get to set the price. And they're the only entity in the chain that does not pay the checkoff. And I was going to get to that. They don't pay the checkoff, but they're the prime beneficiaries of it. And, you know, we, we talked about how the, the checkoff has told us that, you know, these imports are a good thing and these checkoff and, you know, they're good things for the American producers. I'll come out and say it. You know, JBS, I wonder how many cattle 
are owned by JBS that like aren't actually owned by JBS that they have control over that they're raising in Brazil that they're importing here and selling. Do you, do you think any of that's going on or do you think they're buying it from, you know, Jose, what's his name, independent cattle rancher in Brazil? Like I, I have no idea how cattle ranching works in Brazil. Oh, it'd be some of both, but you know, dang well that they've got, uh, you know, a lot of those cattle that they have uh, purchased or contracted that, that are in the country or that they've paid for the people to, to start the production. You know, they're a powerful outfit down there. You know, I, one time they owned more of the currency than the government did. And they used it to bribe the government, <laughs> got in trouble with it. Like, uh, Mike Calicrate brought this up. You know Mike, don't you? Mm-hmm. I think you guys have talked a couple times. Um, I, he'd, he'd asked the USDA previously, why are the Batista brothers, they're convicted felons in their home country, why are they allowed to be participate in the meat industry here? Because the USDA laws say convicted felons can't participate in the meat industry. And that's one of those things that happened that came out of the, the 1920s with Packers, along with the Packers and Stockyards Act. And Mike said what the USDA told him was, well, they're convicted in Brazil, not in America, so they can do business. Well, then just as it happened a couple months ago, they got hit, they got convicted of that bribery deal here and had to pay a huge fine. And he's asked the USDA again, <laughs> what their position is on convicted felons owning a major meatpacking uh, conglomerate. And uh, I'll have to circle back. I'll have to give Mike a call tomorrow and see if he's got an answer to that one. But that, uh, that might be kind of amusing. I'm sure they'll find a loophole that it's all right. Yeah. I, there always is. There's always there's always loopholes and, and carve outs and, and special interest. So what uh how, how can we get the next generation excited in the rural lifestyle and, and about cattle and raising cattle? You know, I don't know, Brian. I um you know, quite honestly, if things doesn't don't change, I think you're probably doing a disservice to them trying to get them to um you know, I I don't know. Okay, well, let's pause there. I mean, and I share some of your feelings. Like, you know, th- there's a lot wrong with our industry. You know, why would anybody want to move to Pratt? Why would anybody want to move to Medicine Lodge or to Sun City? I get it. But we have to, I mean, there's, there's a charm, there's a beauty out here that doesn't exist anywhere else on earth. You know, there's some of the friendliest people on earth out here in middle America. You know, you broke down alongside of a road, you won't find a stranger. You know, somebody will be along to check on you and make, see if you need help. And the farther out in the farther out in the bush you are, <laughs> you might have to wait a little bit longer, but somebody will come and they will be friendly. You know, what, what is it about our lifestyle? What is it about our location? What is it about this business of raising cattle that has any attractiveness for a young person these days? And I struggle with this question. I really do. You know, we look at the cost of doing business, like just not just what costs have done the last couple of years, the barrier to entry for land. Like you and I both, I think we can probably agree that you can't go anywhere in Barber or Pratt County today and buy a ranch and pay for it by running cows. That's not going to happen. Maybe if you had, maybe if it was a small enough acreage, a couple of cows, a bunch of chickens, some geese, some turkeys, some pigs, and some sheep, and some goats, and maybe a milk cow, and you're really diversified and worked your 
butt off, maybe. But that's not an attractive lifestyle either, is it? Yeah, and again, that's probably why we're in the position we are, because the people that are here and the people that that have come back and the people that want to do it um, are willing to do it for a lot of risk and very little reward for that lifestyle and to live here where there's good people and, um, you know, whatever. My core group, I mean, you know, everybody loves it here. And they all have desire and and wants for their children to be here. But how many of them, uh, you know, I hate to show my age here, but a lot of us are getting to the age. We have kids that are the age that are are grown and going to the workforce. and Or about ready to have their own kids. And if you're still operating your place, you don't you don't have the ability to bring that kid home and pay them a living wage for them to raise a family and you also um you know uh oh that's 200 cow cow herds that the land was paid off the cows are paid off and they're surviving with a lot less overhead than somebody new entering the business he passes away the one kid that wants to come in that has to buy out three siblings, and now he has an interest load in the cows and the land. Yep. They cannot live on the 200 cows. Nope. So if they want to do that, them and their old lady have to have a job in town, and then them and their kids have to run those cows of an evening and weekends. Yep. And I mean, that's that's what you're asking for entry into this business. Yeah, and, you know, there's 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 a whole like deeper rabbit holes about succession planning. And, you know, um, one of the things that that's coming around in the regenerative circle is it's not regenerative if you don't know who you're passing it on to. And I can agree with that. And it goes right along with what we're saying, you know, but how do we, how do we fix it? Lack of profitability is the problem is a problem, not the problem. The problem is lack of access to markets fair markets and competition in the markets and the the control of those markets the gatekeeper is the packer so i i I think there's two ways that we can really start to rebuild our rural economies cows build towns right Mm -hmm. you say that all the time and i love it cows build towns probably the title of this episode if cows build towns we need to have more cows build more towns I don't think that's true. We need to get more people involved with the cows and we need to get more slaughter plants to handle the cows. We need to get, we need to get some more sale barns back. How many sale barns have left in the last 20 years that you've bought? How many sale barns have you bought at in the last 20 years that aren't open anymore? Oh, it'd be at least 10, maybe more. Um, I'd have to think about that one, but, but that migration's, you know, more and more as, as the economy scale gets bigger, more people are vertically integrated with with the packer, and they bypass that sale barn. Um, that's been a cause for a lot of it. You know, a lot of the cattle never never come back through a sale barn um, for various reasons. Um, maybe you did it for thirty years, and now you can't get banked or don't have the funding to do it, and so now you're doing it. Um, with a large feedlot putting them out on you, 
um, or you're taking kettle into the on the gain for a feed yard, and then boom, there they go. Um, you can't rewrite history. The best thing the checkoff could have done in retrospect was uh, was build a uh, was build small packers every 200 miles, um, and that would have done a couple three things in today's ag community. It would have kept the money in the regions, number one. Yeah. Kept transportation lower. It would have kept the sale barns in business. It would have kept people, instead of cattlemen becoming bigger cattlemen and farmers becoming bigger farmers and specialists, you'd have had people still doing both. Right. You know, 30, 40 years ago. And that would have kept these co-ops from becoming big conglomerates and huge profit margins. Um, and holding the farmers at ransom, everything they buy, because you'd have kept feeding cattle at home, you'd have fed your grain to the cattle, um, and you'd have cut out a lot of middlemen, and that would have kept that money in Pratt, Kansas. That would have kept your kid to be able to come back. Right. Um, Keeping the meat plant here, I mean, that's a lot of good-paying jobs. And I, I think you and I both know, like, that's where most of the wealth is extracted right now in the whole beef production cycle is, is that 24 hours that it spends in the packing house. Mm -hmm. That's where all the wealth is extracted. So in my mind, like if we really want to start revitalizing our rural economies and rebuilding our towns, we've got to process cows in town. Yep. That's, you know, you know, regional packers um, was the way to go. It would have kept a thriving farmer feeder, Local demand. Um, we wouldn't be shipping the things four, five, six hundred miles. Then we wouldn't be sending them all to a packer that half of them are foreign owned, and the even the packer's profit doesn't stay in America. And that's, I think, that's definitely one of the more disturbing things about the packers is two of the biggest are foreign owned: JBS, Smithfield, and Smithfield. Their money goes to China. JBS goes to Brazil. And we have such a small amount of packers, it's almost like in today's world, it's a favor to us that they will process them. If you had those local packers, they would have worked downhill with the producers to have that constant supply and have that product they needed. Um, you probably still would have seen, quote, unquote, vertical integration, but it would have been vertical integration to make that local packer slash community slash rancher survive and all be profitable, not vertical integration of, hey, you've got to work on a $25 head margin or we're not going to deal with you. Yeah, it always blows my mind how the packer can say, well, you're just going to work on this margin and that's what you're going to do. Like, uh, that doesn't work like that for me. <laughs> it never works like that. And we've lost the, the cattle cycle. NCBA wants to claim it's still alive, and um, and they all want to point back to fourteen fifteen when the cattle market got good. But um, I think one of the big misnomers and something that probably people don't understand there is that even with the reduced numbers then because of the drought, the producers' leverage did not take the market where we we did not have leverage there. Right. Um, what happened there was drought was front page news on everything. Cow herd being smaller was front page news on everything. And the funds 
got into the CME and ran that board up, and the Packers knew it was a freight train, and they had to buy the board. And so there was self-fulfilling prophecy. They were along the board. The funds were along the board. The more they gave for the fat kettle, they hey, netted them the same. you got to explain that to me like I'm five. Because you're, you're using high-level cow trading terms that I, I just don't have burned into my brain yet. Well, like in the CME, I mean, used to. I mean, the theory of that was to be a, a Chicago a, Mercantile Exchange. Pricing structure and a, and a risk management tool for producers. Well, that's turned into day that, that uh, the algorithms and the, and the funds are the biggest players in that. Um, and most producers are sellers of the market. 30, 40 years ago, these feed yard managers, if, if the thing got too cheap or the packers were busting their balls too much, they'd buy the board. What does buying the board mean? Um, purchase the live cattle market at what it is on the CME. Okay. Instead of selling it. As a, as a producer, most producers are a seller okay. for hedging their product. But And when already, you buy the board, you take all the supply away. Right. Well, and you're, you're purchasing. So you're raising the price on paper okay. or on the Merck. But you had, had cowboys that would, would buckle up and try to combat the Packers selling the board to buy cattle cheaper by buying the board. Um, in today's risk um, cycle, that, that just doesn't happen. But the funds are the major players in the board. Um, and so managed money is the one playing all the markets. It's what gets into the grain and runs them $2 too high, and then they correct. And same thing. Well, the funds are what drove the cattle market up. Okay. I mean, it wasn't the fact that reduced numbers give the producers leverage, and we demanded that. Okay. Um, so basically what we're sitting here for what we used to call a cattle cycle, or if we're waiting for numbers to decrease and return leverage to the producer, that's not going to happen. Do you think the cycle broke? It's, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, what we're waiting for is the cow herd reports to be smaller, manage money to decide oh, man, there's less kettle around here. They purchase the board, run the futures price up. Packers get scared. They buy the board to get the next year's inventory, which runs the price up even more. Then people start selling kettle faster. Kettle more turnover down with less weight, which takes off carcass weight. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy just for a little bit. Which will drive prices up. Which will spike prices. So I, I've talked to, you know, a little bit about the cycle with, you know, several other friends. And the consensus seems to be that the signals are the cows are about ready to start going up to depreciate. Would you agree with that? I think... I think so, but it's probably not going to happen as fast as we think it will for a couple reasons. Um, 14 and 15 got wild and furious, and and a lot of those cows on a five- or seven-year note, people realize they give way too much for them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number two, 
And those are just all coming out of inventory now. Those should be coming out of production. Not very many ranchers buy cows. Most ranchers raise cows. And so farmers buy cows. Today's farmer is becoming less of a stockman, not more. I would definitely agree with that statement. Farmers are getting bigger, more specialized. Um, So I don't think that female market's going to be as increases dramatically as even the calfer feeder deal will. I think the lack of players in that market is going to keep a cap on that. You think we're just going to see a soft bump, not not a mountain like we did? Right. Not that they can't appreciate, but it just. Um, like I say, I mean, there's more farmers getting rid of their cows than looking to purchase cows. You know, they want to farm more acreage, and especially with grain prices where they are, um, you know, they're going to be professional farmers. They're not looking to be stockmen also. Well, I think you know, the, the skill set it takes to be a stockman is something that you have to feed and you have to continually work at your whole life in order to in order to have mastery over it even if you can't ever master being a stockman. So what, uh, other than building more regional packing plants and spreading out some of this packing capacity and opening up some of these marketing channels, like the problem with these big mega plants is they're designed to run a specific kind of carcass. And the people that buy for that plant, they're going to buy specific kinds of cattle. Like, you know, there's certain, like there's cull cow plants and then there's plants that only handle steers of a certain weight, Right. So as we if we could build out some of these more of these regional plants, you know, we'll have flexibility in these small processors that'll take a cow, you know, that'll take cows one day, take steers the next day, or maybe take a, you know, a killer bull the third day. You you know what I'm saying? You know, more flexibility, which creates more competition. What do we? What can we do to reform the fed cattle marketing on the on that conventional side? Well, the, the number one thing that we need we could do is enforce the Packers and Stockyards laws. If we can't get that done, um, you know, I guess I'm a bad guy to ask because we've been jumping from the rooftops and we think we get some steam or, or think there's going to be some assistance. And um, the legislators don't have any idea about our business. You know, even the ones from the ag states. You know, there's very <laughs> few that, that are educated or versed. And, um, you know, the first hurdle is that you've got to go through a two-hour animal science lesson with any legislature you talk to. Um, this is a cow. Yeah. This is a bull. <laughs> this the is next, a heifer. <laughs> the next thing is our political systems ran on money, and we don't have any. Um, everybody we're fighting has a lobbyist. Um, and everybody we're fighting donates to put the right candidate in, in and their opinions are, are bought off from day one. Um, they're told what they're told what to think on a group of issues by somebody that hands them a check. So uh, I hate to be Debbie Downer here, but I'm not so sure that the the rancher or the producer has uh, <clears throat> a lot of chance in this fight until we come up with funding to. Uh, to uh, supply a lobby on our behalf. That's just the way the rules and the laws in this country work. 
Okay. We can play around with that for a minute. How would, I wonder what that would look like. So do you think we could maybe get checkoff funds for a producer led lobby? You know, that would be uh, my opinion and, or like, you know, Mark Winter said that from the get go of when we started messing with the, um, the reform of the checkoff, he said, do you realize, you know, you're, you're fighting this group that's making, you know, hundreds of millions a month. And here we are worried about a dollar a head when their margins are seven or 800. A head. <laughs> yeah. You know, now he said, now take that dollar a head and put it towards a lobby and you might get somewhere, but just stand alone as a dollar a head. It's peanuts. Yeah, my couple hundred bucks and gonna do crap in the in the whole scheme of things. Um, but like, how do how do we get eighty percent of cattle producers to agree on this is what we need to lobby for for our industry? That's the other thing: unification or or uh, ag seen it and seen it and seen it. I mean, that's that seems to be the insurmountable hurdle. Um, you know, take the checkoff reform. I don't know if one out of a hundred people that if I could personally talk to had been against it. Um, and everybody else that was working at it, same thing. But getting them to see it, pay attention to it, do it online. Go sign the stupid petition. Just won't happen. God, it was such a simple thing to ask to do. I mean, I, I, I obviously did it, and I know you did it, but I, I just when the signature totals started coming up, I was just blown away. Like there's no way that few of people signed this. Like the, the amount of support people said that they had for this, like did just nobody see it. Are we in that small of an echo chamber that nobody freaking saw it? If you had time to sit at every sale barn for two months straight and personally talk to everybody that brought cattle in, you might get it done. Because they'll sign it if you're there in person and somebody presents it to them. But if it's just laying on a counter or you're asking them to do it electronic. Scroll, scroll, scroll. You just don't get, don't get the traction. And then again, you know, it gets down to, it gets down to to labor and manpower and what things cost. And, you know, I'm one man, you're one man. And we agree that these things are important. We can agree that, you know, that some effort should be put in this direction. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to get up tomorrow and cows got to be fed. Ice is going to have to be broke. Fences are going to have to be checked. You know, you've got stuff to do. We've got animals to keep alive. We've got, you know. I, I, the producer's real power, and it frustrates me that they don't realize it enough to use it, is their dollar. Whether it's in these small communities or bigger corporations, we're not talking about the checkoff dollar. No, but their dollar they spend, whatever it is, their veterinary supplies, their feed supplies, their pickups, their fuels, their, you know, if they held who they purchased things from accountable and made them be a voice for them, then we gain some traction. Brian Alexander and Steve Stratford Cohen, Jerry Moran, we're one constituent. Right. And our name recognition is zero. Right. In Washington, D.C. 
just just some random guy guys out there in the middle of Kansas. We don't need to worry about what they had to say. But just go up the step ladder up a Kansas Co-op, an American Angus Association, a Pratt Livestock, John Deere's, Purina's, Nutrina. I mean, those people come on board and start fighting for you. They they do have name recognition. Yeah, you tell senators and representatives that here's these 12 corporations that are signing on to this bill then that carries clout and that's what has to be done and you can bring those people to the table they fall with the other side by default because they want to go sit at the conventions or the you know highfalutin things and sit at the table with them right but those places aren't the ones that that pay their salaries and pay them to run around and and buy their product you know the ranchers do the farmers do and so if you would only do business with people that are proactive for you it may take paying a little more or going a little further for a while it matters but you would bring everybody to their milk it matters and it adds up yep they they could do that just like that and that uh, everything i mean take a sale barn for instance so you're out speaking for a producer or you're you're trying to fundamentally change a business and corporations purchase a lot of kettle well the corporations pay attention to what you're saying and they inform you that it's not your business or you shouldn't be worried about it well they have the time to have somebody in that office call those people that own the sale barn what needs to happen is a hundred producers call and say, the reason you're getting my cattle is because you are fighting for us. Right. But you don't get those calls. So you don't get that reinforcement of ownership to take a hold. You know, they don't hear anything from that side, but you hear it from the corporation side that it's not our business. You shouldn't be, you know. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Yeah. So they need to be louder. They need to be more boisterous with their opinion, and they need to vote with their dollar. I like it. And, and like, that's not the first time I've heard you say that, and it's it's definitely important. You know, the John Deere dealer, like, John Deere has a tremendously loud voice. If everybody that listens to this podcast, if all of your friends, if half of your friends would go into the John Deere dealership and say, hey, you need to support this checkoff reform. You need to get behind your beef producers. Because the reality is, Steve, if they don't, in 20 or 30 years, maybe none of us are, maybe none of these jobs will be here. Maybe all these new shiny tractor dealerships and, you know, crop consultant pickups and, and seed distributors, whoops, they won't be here because we're not going to be here with the cattle. We're not going to be here with the crops. Yeah. And, get the economy scales that keep getting bigger i mean those people can buy 10 tractors and get them shipped from wherever they don't need their local guy you know they don't need they don't need the dealership service tech because they've got enough stuff they'll just hire their own mechanic yeah and so there's very few places in this business that you can go outpower who we're up against and at the retail sector you can um you know, the major packers and the and the corporate feed yards 
don't buy enough John Deere tractors that their voice is bigger than the ag producer in the United States. Right. They don't buy enough feed from Natrina Perina co-ops that their voice is bigger than the producers. Same caterpillar, whatever it is. So, I mean, that's our power is to to force those people that that uh, depend on our purchasing dollar to voice to stand up and do something for us. And we've never required that of them. How many producers do you know that say, "I buy cake from here not because it's two twenty a ton versus two forty, but before because this guy's doing something for me, other than selling me." Right. You know, same product, two different guys. One might be $5 more expensive, but he's the guy that comes around, rides around with me, looks at the cows, makes a recommendation. The other guy calls me on the phone every couple of months and says, what do you need? But is he calling as, hey, I'm manager of such and such co-op or I'm manager of the John Deere in Pratt, Kansas. Does he call his senators and representatives and work for you? Good question. Is he trying to keep you in business? Good questions. They don't. Nobody makes them do it. You just continue to go there because he's local or it's who you always have or it's who your dad did. Um, or there isn't anybody else within 100 miles to do business with. You've got to I mean, you've got to do your business with people that are going to go to bat for you. And that's how ag, ag can climb this mountain. And I think that other than other than hopes and dreams of market reform or checkoff reform or of some miracle legislative relief to break up the big packers, I think really like pressuring the people that support us that we do business with as cattlemen, pressuring them to have our backs. I think that's our best shot at getting anything done, honestly. Yep, I do too. And like I say, People will take the path of least resistance. So thinking those people are just going to do it on their own? No. Aren't going to. And you need to tell them why you're leaving them and why you're going somewhere else. They need to hear it because it's too long of a process for them to watch 5%, 5%, 5% leave. Right. They need to hear why you're leaving. You know, hey, I like your service. I've done business with you forever, but I'm switching to here because... They're working for me. It's because they signed the checkoff reform petition and they sent their dues to this other organization. Well, speaking of organizations, what what are some good organizations that that you know are fighting for the cattlemen? Like, um, and we can talk about any one of them you want to mention. I just don't want to don't want to lead you on here. Um, you know, RCAF. Um, I'm a member. And I would be guilty of it. I mean, RCAF was probably dismissed as radical 30 years ago. Um, but as far as an American rancher, um, their efforts and their policy and, and what they want probably align better for the American producer than anybody. Um, and then quite honestly, if you fast forward 30 years from when you – thought they were radical they were exactly right (laughs) so they were really ahead of the game it's like uh oh what is that that meme that's been going around conspiracy theorists are just predicting the future yeah (laughs) um 
you know, everybody sat there and thought, oh, no, no, no. But, um, you know, if people that got on board and paid attention, I mean, it's exactly what's happened. Um, and they were trying to fight this battle before it happened. So, um, and, you know, that's a that's an organization that those people are, are all working for basically nothing. Um, they get up and fight the battle and, and uh, work tireless hours, and, and they are working for the people. And they they are us. Like there is, I don't think there's a single RCAF board member that pretty, that isn't already a full time ranger. Yeah, you go to the convention. Um, I went up and spoke a couple of years ago, and um, you know the membership are just great people. Um, you know, regular communist pig shit, everyday people. Um, you know, I, I guess it's probably not a a. Uh, hidden topic but um i'm not a fan of ncba um you don't have to hide that from me steve <laughs> most uh, <laughs> most of ncba's policies uh fall in line for for mega corporations and big commercial feed yards um i don't see the last 20 years that i've been paying attention that they do anything um market wise um for ranchers and farmer feeders and smaller producers now to be fair um environmental laws um animal rights and and some some of the congressional fight in some of those areas um they do do some good i i 100 percent um now are they doing that for brian alexander and steve stratford or are they doing that for their mega corps and packers buddies and we they're doing it for by default we're benefiting by default like we're, we're collateral damage yeah. i think would be the correct term uh, they do have a strong enough voice and a, and a big enough powerful enough lobby that that they do do us some good there um, you know and then kla falls under that umbrella but um but market wise um survivability rise percent of the retail dollar um I don't think they really care if the average producer out here survives or not. I I would agree. I would definitely agree with that. You think that uh, feedlot concentration is just as much of a problem as packer concentration? No, it's not as much of a problem. Um, if feed yards would have remained smaller, would we be in some of the problem we are no if farmer feeders had remained more prevalent because you wouldn't have had the 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 economy of scale to make the ama so enticing and the formulas and have so many of these cattle that are unpriced and handed to them that keep them out of the market um more feedlots means instead of one guy going to buy eight loads it's eight guys going to buy one load so the the AMAs and the formulas basically actually has allowed the packers to actually own less cattle and less feedlots themselves. You know, they used to have to own them, and they used to have to feed those cattle in order to have pawns on the on the chessboard to use against you in the cash market. Now they have the people that have the AMAs and the and the formula cattle they're doing that for them, you know, feeding 200,000 cattle and working on X amount of margin. And, and 
they're supplying those can you, cattle to use against you. Can you explain how that formula marketing arrangement works? Well, they're, they're tied into one packer. Okay. Um, and those cattle are priced at, you know, the Western Kansas average plus. The plus is the question. <laughs> right. So what is Western Kansas average, and how do they figure that out? Yeah, the Western Kansas average is, is off of, uh, you know, the average of the of the cash market, um, which is hard to establish a lot of weeks. Now, <laughs> so how do we establish the value on the cash market? If when there's not a lot of cash trade because everything is is on the dark market of AMAs for the naysayers of the fact that that more cash is not good for the market. Um, I would use the last five months comparison. I mean, if you want to reverse, my timing's going to be off here. But if you want to reverse eight weeks ago, we were probably still stuck in the one twenty six hole for fed kettle. Sounds about right. Boxed beef was probably. 310, 315. That's about that, yep. Um, probably we're trading. There's no producer hiding over there to fact yeah. check. It's like on Rogan. I'm not that good uh, yet. Probably thirty to 50,000 a week cash trade. Okay. Last week we traded almost 100,000 cash trade. Wow. Um, been 80,000 plus since we broke out of that 126 hole and went to 140. Huh. That can't be a coincidence at all. Yeah. Um, you know, I think what probably let that happen was the feeder kettle in August was really good. And so, and the board broke after the, about the middle of August when all those grass kettle went on feed. So all the kettle had come out of the Flint Hills and the Long Seat, the July 15th to August 15th placements, those feeder cattle were really high. Right. They were never hedgeable. They were never contractable okay. at profit. Probably not even at $100 loss for the two months after purchase. And so none of those cattle were contracted and handed to them. None of those cattle, very few of those cattle were hedged because they were never hedgeable. And so when it came that those cattle were on the show list, everybody was hard to deal with. And you didn't have hedgers when there was a four dollar basis in the in the live futures market selling cash cheap, and it allowed the market to go up. Hence, we trade more cash kettle. So, if we're trading, you said that it was a uh, hundred thousand a week, just shy of it last week. I think ninety six ish. So that's and we slaughter what about six fifty six hundred sixty thousand yeah. a week is is average U.S. slaughter. So we're talking about uh, my math sucks today. Like way less than twenty percent, like fifteen percent, fifteen percent, fifteen eighteen percent of the market, and that's huge is in comparison com- compared to what it normally is, which is you said about half that or maybe less. So five seven percent is what it normally is, and we're looking at you know ten fifteen. I mean we're we're still looking at peanuts. Like, and the point that I want to make is that it's really ridiculous to use ten percent of the total market that's controlled by four people to set the price for so much of the rest. And like, it, it's really, it, I, I can't understand how people will look at that situation and say, 
well, the Packers don't control that. They don't have, you know, that doesn't affect price. Like anybody should be able to see that, that that small amount of cash trade, which is the basis of the price for all of these dark marketing agreements and AMAs. Like that's just not right because that is way too small of a percentage to accurately represent anything going on in any market forces that, that are actually happening. And then a lot of weeks back when you're in the threshold of trading thirty five to 50,000 cattle, it is the below average cattle if you consider the 600,000. And, and that's so the other the part of it. And that, that want to go to the grid and, and want to say that you're getting these premiums. But if your base is devalued 15, 20, 30%, are you really getting a premium? Mm-hmm. You're just getting a payment for handing them to them. Right. You're getting a payment for providing them to – the scheduling power. I mean, they're basically giving you a payment to throw everybody else under the bus. More or less. And they don't care who gets thrown under the bus. Like they don't care because they don't have this. It's not their skin in the game. They're not the ones that are having to pay for it. It's, uh, it's, uh, I would just challenge anybody that thinks that the way we market fed cattle is right and a good market for the producers to come watch a calf and feeder auction and and see how that operates. And if we did that in the in the fed cattle sector, we would be a lot better off. You know, what do you mean by that? Well, take the five, six, seven major players in Pratt, Kansas one day. What if before they walked into that building and and we ran through the kettle we have to offer that day, that somebody the Friday before give them 80 to 85% of their needs based off the price they walk in there to give. Okay. First thing, you're giving them all the reason in the world not to go in and give much. Because they already got most of what they need. Because they're going in to buy 10 to 15, 20% of their need, but they're, they're pricing 80% off of that. So what it? <laughs> yeah, they price the 80% that they're paying a premium for off the 15% of the bottom of the barrel. So why would you want to go in and and give all that you could give for one or, you know? You're going to tell you, if I work for Tyson, I'm going to go tell my buddy that works for Cargill, be like, hey, this lot's mine. You get the next draft. We'll let the guy from JBS get the one after that. Yeah, we'll exactly. keep everybody's prices low so we don't screw up your grid. We don't screw up my formula. And people don't realize just how few a private, with the escalation of the grain prices and the fact that the farmer feeders in Iowa and Nebraska had so many challenges marketing fed kettle, how shallow our feeder market is. I mean, there's two or three private players there that are keeping the mega corporations honest. And if we break them, now we've turned the feeder kettle sector into a price taker. It, um, is it just those three? Is it those three left. people keeping us from being totally chickenized? Pretty close. That's scary. Now it's per region. But in like in our market, if you take individual or small feed yards, it's pretty slim. How many do you think we've lost in the last couple of years? 
uh, probably fifteen to fifteen percent in the last couple three years um, of a of a weekly player, maybe twenty. Um, just for example, are they aging out or quitting or some of both? Um, you know, in Iowa, aging out, grain got high. They could sell their corn at six seven dollars and not feed cattle. Right, and like I say, challenges of marking their fed kettle in the last three years financially took them out. Um, in August, September, October, when there's not a lot of yearlings around, um, was the market good without them? Yeah. In February, March, April, May, we're going to miss them in there because we're going to have a lot of supply. Um, you're going to see huge basis of those cattle that without the competition in there. Um, you know, and I hope something changes that they come back into the market. Um, but like a farmer feeder trade in Iowa, the last year we've probably lost 85% of them. Wow. Wow. That's not good. No. I mean, I have a gentleman I work with out of Manchester, Iowa, that ran a sale barn there, and and I became friends with him through another friend. Um, But they sold fat cattle still at his sale barn. And he purchased feeders for a lot of those guys that sold fats at his barn. And I'm talking 10, 12 feeders that fed 1,000 to 2,000 all the time. Wow. I haven't sent one there in the last year. When does it stop? When does the bleeding stop? It either stops when we uh, do something to take our market back, or it stops when they get, all get big enough that that we're all working for them and some some you know margin it dictated seen that coming seen it coming where we're all you know where we're all kind of an employee of tyson or smithfield there was was several years ago and it was one of the things that pushed me down the road of owning cattle okay do i stay a custom grazer my whole life and just be content with the small piece of the pie or do i get involved and do i be a part of this business that i'm kind of at the edge of because the longer I stayed a custom grazer, the more I could see how that business model would work long term. But I could also see where I definitely, you know, where I would end up, which is I would end up with a long term deal with probably a feedlot that was the same every year and it was consistent for both of us. And there's benefits in that. Like there's stability. We all crave stability, especially as a small business owner. Like the thing you want the most in your life anymore after you start that business is you want stability again. Stability your cash flow, stability your expenses. And that's that's why corporate that's why people get big. That's why people get out. And I saw that I saw that in my future and I said that's not really where I want to go from with my life. I want to have more control over what I am doing than just being like a middleman to take care of somebody else's livestock for a little bit. Does that make sense to you? (coughs) Excuse me. So 
I guess what I'm saying is, you know, I'm invested and I want to. I'm trying to do these things to re to help rebuild our economy, to help our our communities, and like we talked about earlier, I think one of the best things that could bring back some profitability and some attractiveness to our rural communities is smaller packing houses, regional packing houses. Let's put one in every small town in America and not run them to 100%. I mean, run a 50, 75% capacity. So if we do have an event, we need to process some more animals. It's not a problem. The guy in the next town over, his place burns down. The next three nearest towns can spread the load and we don't have you know, we don't have something to happen like when you have the Tyson fire and the you know one of the four largest plants in the world shuts down for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's a consumer problem. I mean, is uh, and it just like with us? You know, we talked about how as producers, how we can get people on our side, we vote with our dollar. Consumers have to start voting with their food dollar, I think, and they have to be conscious of where they're spending that food dollar. Whether you know whether it, it's ultimately a Tyson Smithfield or JBS product, or whether it's a small craft branded product like you get just up here at the street, or like maybe some of your clients are starting to get into with their own branded beef programs, I I would love to be able to go into a grocery store, either either in Medicine Lodge or here in Pratt or anywhere, and have the regular commodity product that we're all used to seeing sitting there in the shelf but also having, you know, maybe some Alexander Ranch beef that's got Stratford influence, and maybe that's just a known thing, or having, um, oh, what was that other one you partnered with, Rock and R heifers. I, I grew some rock, I grew some of those heifers for you yeah. last year, didn't I? How'd yeah. they do? Well, they were, uh, yeah, they were recips that had embryos in them, so he took them back to New Mexico. So Get some good yeah. calves out of them? Yeah, I think so. I think they're calving right now. Awesome. You know? think they kept right before you all shipped them started or right after they were supposed to start yeah that was they were in a bad drought and then they ended up having a really nice back half of the summer and they're dry now again but so are we well it's, it was an interesting bunch to take care of i would never really taken care of any recips just you know our other mutual friends commercial herd which is like oh you could put one of his on a coffee machine and just run 250 copies and that's kind of like that's how he likes his cows and sometimes i'm kind of envious of that Oh, we've, we've talked about a lot of stuff and I want to end this sucker on a high note. When is the next Stratford Angus production sale? Uh, be the last Saturday in February, last Saturday in February. All right. If people want to sell catalog, where do they have to go? Uh, probably the easiest in today's world to message me on Facebook or, or, uh, my numbers all over everywhere, but I'll make sure it gets in the show notes. Um, I want to put a link to your personal page in there because you capped out on friends at uh, your your secondary cattle, cattle chat. I'll make sure I get that in the show notes. Anywhere else you want me to drive traffic? I think, uh, you know, and, and probably most people that listen, but, uh, you know, you can learn quite a bit. Uh, cattle USA or Pratt Livestock's website, you know, has a lot of the future market and a lot of news and, and consignments and market reports and stuff. And then, of course, I do the market report and I post that. But, uh, um, you know, I, I guess I'm proud to work with and work for uh, a group that I feel we do work for producers. Um, and and I value that the, the ownership and, and other management uh, support and, and 
want to do that also. So um, I'm pretty proud of that, and, and I hope producers realize it. And, and uh, we're sure trying to work for them and keep them in business because they're the ones that keep us in business. Well, and I know a lot of guys around appreciate it and appreciate what you do there at Pratt Livestock and appreciate your genetics program. So um, before we go, you want to tell me about JR and how he's doing? Well, we'll uh, we'll see. We're starting a new rodeo season. Um, uh, I guess uh, most people that follow me know he fractured his neck in the summer. Um, rode with it that way for for those that don't follow. JR's your son, yeah, and he's yeah. how old? Nineteen, and he's doing what? Uh, he's a PRCA bull rider. He's having pretty good luck, right? Yeah, he did. He had a good start to the season. Um, you know, did a lot of things to be proud of. Just uh, uh, he started two months late this season because he had to have his shoulder rebuilt. Um, then he rode in February, and that ride uh, remained the highest mark ride for the entire regular season. Um, and then in June, late June, I think he fractured his neck. He continued to ride all through July, and then finally had to give it up. And we just he got some injections. Um, and rest and hopefully he's going to come back healed up we'll see well good deal so he's uh i think headed to des moines this friday and then denver next week so pretty fun to watch well maybe he'll get a list of this one on his way to denver next week because yep. I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and turn this one around for next week um something else happened to you uh recently in indiana you want to talk about yeah, that i got married um i've been dating congratulations wife, sage and so thank you um Finally smart enough to marry her, I guess. So uh, <laughs> we got that behind us now, and uh, she's a good girl. I'm blessed to have her. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. Thanks for your time and, and efforts you spend at it. And thanks for getting me on here, and, and uh, hopefully we'll do some good sometime. If we can change one mind. I think if we can just open one mind at a time, I, I think that's about all we can, about all we can do. Well, um, I thank you and and the thousands of others across the country that help. There's so many people. Some people get more exposure and have a position to to get more exposure, but uh, producers should feel pretty pretty thankful and, and grateful that there is so many people out working for them. And if they'd just hold everybody else to the to the same standards, they'd hold their kids or their spouses to that to work for them. Um, we could do do something pretty special. I hope. I'd agree with that. Have is there anything that you want to get off your chest? I forgot to ask you. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I just, you know, I'm thankful to to be in this business and this community, and and I want to see it continue to thrive, and I want to see the see the people I work for and work with uh, continue to be able to do what they love. So, um, I think we need to need to work at some changes to make that happen. So that's why we do it. And I think over the last couple of hours we've talked about, you know, what a lot, what, what people can do and, um, not just they themselves, they can do, you know, call your legislators, put pressure on them, talk to the people that you do business with and pressure them to fight for you. And if they won't fight for you, take your dollars somewhere else. You know, the consumers get to choose who they want to support by voting with their food dollars. Us producers, we got to, we got to support the people that are supporting us with our dollars and look what ag will do you guys you experienced it in your country with a fire um to 
just recently had one northeast of here. Oh, uh, terrible. But look what the ag community does in situations like that. Um, they need to start looking at their business as a disaster. And their voice and their fight and, and what they do helps that person that, that they would help if he had a fire as much as as, as the load of hay. After a disaster. Yeah. Um, so we need to look at it as a crisis situation. And, you know, if ag would what, do what they would do for their neighbor and their friends or, or their peer in another state facing adversity, um, it would be amazing what we could get done. Yeah, because you hear about a fire. Oh, there's a big wildfire, 300,000 acres. That's all somebody needs to hear. And they're like, well, I'm going to go donate a load of hay or they're writing a check to the KLA, which is great. But we need to think about what we can do to help each other out when we're not in crisis or when we're not in like a highly visible crisis because we're in crisis. Like our industry is, is in crisis. Exactly. And we're a powerful group. And nobody works harder. And if we could just kind of get a common goal and, and, uh, and like you say, if we, if we would realize that we're in crisis mode and everybody needs to uh, do everything they can to save our business, um, it'd be amazing. The power we have. I hope we're around to see it. Yep, I do too. All right, you ready to get out of here, buddy? Yep, thank you very much. Well, thanks for being here, Steve. It's been an absolute blast to do this, and uh, hopefully we can sit down and do it again sometime. That'll work. Good luck. Goodbye, everybody.